Mark chapter one, beginning in verse nine, it says it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus provides us with a picture in part of what happens when a person makes a decision to honor and follow the Lord in verse nine. The decision includes elements of submission and identification with God and his people in verse nine. The decision includes a commissioning by God and an empowering by the Holy Spirit in verse 10. And we see the approval and encouragement of the father for the son in verse 11 In this first chapter of Mark, he gives an account of the ministry of John the Baptist, God's herald, God's messenger, God's forerunner for the Messiah. He was foretold by Malachi and his mission was described by Isaiah, the prophet. Then with brevity and haste, Mark refers to the past, the record of the baptism of Jesus His anointing and a little bit later on in the text, his testing and temptation in the wilderness by Satan. These facts have a bearing on the Messiah's identity and mission and service. And that's why Mark brings it up. And so in verse one, we see the servants surrender, actually, verse nine, the servants surrender and submission. Look what it says. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came. Now, in my years of ministry, I've had the privilege of participating in the baptism of literally hundreds of individuals over the past 30 years. The baptism of Jesus is unique for at least three reasons. I've never been to a baptism ever, and I've never conducted a baptism ever, where the sky was ripped open, where the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, where a voice was heard from heaven. I get frustrated as a pastor that I don't do things right. Whenever I do a baptism or a funeral, my wife will ask me, well, how did the funeral go? And I go, it wasn't a biblical funeral. What do you mean? The person's still dead. Every funeral Jesus went to, the person came back to life. And the baptism of Jesus was remarkable. Now, I want to draw your attention in verse 9 to those words, Jesus came. They're two short words, but it's a formula for a dramatic and radical event. Ray Stedman points out that in Mark chapter one, verses nine through 15, the phrase Jesus came occurs twice here in verse nine. And again, in verse 14, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. The coming of Jesus includes His baptism and his test 
in a sense, both the baptism and the test will come to Jesus or it will be done to Jesus. The idea being that Jesus must be baptized and he must be tested. But that radical phrase, he came, is important for you and me. The reality is the moment that Jesus shows up, there's something exciting that can and will take place if you'll let it. The reality is that each and every one of us have opportunity when Jesus shows up. And for many of you, that's already true. Jesus has showed up. Jesus came into your life. Jesus came into your life and sins were forgiven and peace came and you experienced this radical reconciliation with the Lord Jesus Christ and and with heaven. Jesus shows up. And it's remarkable because we're going to learn a little bit more about that when we continue our study in Mark's gospel. At the end of verse 9, it says, He came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. In our last trip to Israel, we made our way uh, through Caesarea and we came up through Nazareth. You know, for many, many years, there were scholars, so-called critics, who didn't even believe the village existed. In the time of Jesus, it may have had as few as 150, maybe as many as 300 people in this little village. And scholars and archaeologists estimate the size of the village that Jesus grew up in based on the well and the well's ability to (laughs) provide water for a particular group of people. The village is never mentioned in the Old Testament. The village is never mentioned in the Talmud. The village is never mentioned in the writings of Josephus. As a matter of fact, the whole of the Galilee is about 30 miles wide and about 60 miles long. The area of Israel would have consisted of three primary divisions. The Galilee to the north, Samaria in the middle, Judea to the south, and part of the point that Mark is making is that Jesus comes out of nowhere. It's obscurity. It would be like if someone said, and the great, the new president of the United States is coming out of Lyman, Colorado. What? Lyman? What's there? A trailer park? As you cross into the border of Nebraska? No offense if you're from Lyman. Actually, you're probably deeply offended at this point. But that's part of the point of the passage. How can someone from nowhere, from absolutely nowhere, come and the whole world is different and the whole world changes Now, you have to understand, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the baptism of Jesus. So clearly the gospel writers see a great significance in the baptism of Jesus. And so we know that it has great importance when we're talking about the identity and the mission of Jesus. 
when we talk about the baptism of Jesus, we're not necessarily talking about Baptists. Um, I remember when I was first starting off in ministry and I was flying from California to, uh, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was talking about ministry. And this person was seated behind me and we were talking about the Lord and we were talking about um, the work that, that we were going to begin in Albuquerque. And um, he asked me what kind of minister I was. And I said, I'm a pastor of Calvary Chapel. And, and the person said to me, I'm a Baptist. He said, do you know what I'd be if I wasn't a Baptist? I said, no, what, what would you be? I'd be thoroughly ashamed of myself. Yeah. You know, someone once told me that Baptists are only funny underwater, and it's not true. Baptists can be really funny even when they're not underwater. Now, you have to understand something. This revival of John the Baptist was sweeping the land. Thousands upon thousands of people were responding to the message of repentance, of turning from sin and turning to the true and living God. Remember that people had left their homes, they left their jobs, they left the routine of their lives to hear this wild man speaking in the wilderness, to hear his remarkable message. And the message touched their souls and it spoke to their needs. Imagine the people coming from all around tormented by guilt and haunted by sin and tortured by a sense of failure and inadequacy. Now John brings a message of hope and forgiveness based on repentance and obedience to God. And John's baptism is available only to those who are genuinely sorry and willing to repent. That is, in their mind, turn from their sin and confess their sin. And they express a desire to honor and obey God. John's baptism offered a sign of cleansing and healing, redemption and forgiveness. But it was something else. It was a message that Messiah was on the way. The Messiah was coming and would soon be here. Sin and guilt had generated an identity crisis among the people. And I think that the same is true in the world in which we live. Alvin Toffler, a famous author, wrote many years ago, quote, Today we see millions desperately searching for their own shadows, devouring movies and plays and novels and self-help books, no matter how obscure, that promise to help them locate their missing identities. Even though he wrote this a long time ago, it seems to ring true even today. We might add to... The movies and the plays and the novels and the self-help books, email and electronic transactions. Toffler writes, in the United States, the manifestations of the personality crises are bizarre. Its victims hurl themselves into group therapy, into mysticism, into sexual games. They itch for a change but they're terrified by it. They urgently wish to lead their present existence and leap somehow to a new life to become what they are not. 
I thought about that when I was reading this text. They want to become something that they aren't. What are they? They're sinners. They're guilty. Estranged from God. What is it that they're really looking for? What is it that they really want? What is it that they really need? And John knows the truth. They need forgiveness and healing and hope. What's broken on the inside needs to be made well. They want to escape a life and they want to enter a new life. What kind of a life is it that they're looking for? Is it a life where they're chosen? Is it a life where they're adopted? Is it a life where they're accepted? And for many of you, you can ring true with that. If you dare ask the question, who am I? What am I? What is it that I want and what is it that I need? When Jesus came out of Galilee to be baptized by John, John protests. Matthew's gospel reveals the conversation. Why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. What a remarkable statement. Remember, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's, an, it's a baptism of repentance based on a willingness to identify with the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm going to ask you a question. Kind of a scholar's question, a Bible study question. Did John know at that time that Jesus was the Messiah? Clearly, John's gospel speaks of a sign, the sign of the spirit of God descending on Jesus and remaining on him. There was a promise that God made to John the Baptist. Whoever you see the spirit coming upon and remaining, he's the one. Up until this point, Jesus hasn't been baptized. Scholars suggest the two men knew each other. There seems to be strong evidence that they were related that they might have been family members, that there might have been a relationship between his mother and Jesus's mother. They might have been first or second cousins. And so it might have been possible that they gathered from time to time at cultural events or at family events, that they were related to one another. And if you can't find fault with your relatives, who can you find fault with? But Jesus, there's no fault. There's this profound sense in which he is righteous and holy. That for John the Baptist, he's, he's trying to think of all of the, the wicked people. And Jesus certainly isn't counted among those. The response of Jesus is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. He says to John, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is righteousness? Remember what that word fundamentally means. It means a right standing or an ability to have a right standing or enter into a right relationship or, or to fulfill something that is wrong and make it right. Jesus is not haunted by guilt. Jesus is not haunted by sin. So why should he do this? 
What does it mean? And clearly he does it to identify with us. With sinful human beings, that identification and association will begin at his incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word tabernacled among us. He identifies with us. He takes on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. He acquires a second permanent nature that will be with him and follow him throughout eternity. John puts it this way, that he pitched his tent among us. He identifies with us in his incarnation, and now he identifies with us in his baptism, and he will, before his ministry is over with, identify with us on a cross. The sinless Savior identifies with sinners. The guiltless Savior identifies with the guilty. The future judge doesn't flee the wrath or fear the wrath that is coming. He wants to save you from judgment. That's why one of the reasons why I prayed earlier. Remember in the Old Testament, there was a type and a picture. It was called the scapegoat. The high priest would place his hands upon the head of a goat and he would confess the sins of the nation and drive it into the wilderness. And some of you who love animals, you go, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would you kill something innocent? Why would you do something like that? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me that the innocent should have to suffer for the guilty. Well, at least you're willing to admit that Jesus is innocent. And you're willing to admit that you are guilty. But unless you are willing, like that high priest, to place your hands on the sinless Son of God, you must forever bear your own sin, your own guilt. Donald English puts it this way. He says, Jesus did not become identical to us. He did become identified with us. I like that. Imagine a person who falls hopelessly and helplessly into debt. Some of you are going, hey, that could be me. Yeah, I don't have to even imagine that. I know what it's like to owe way more than I have the ability to repay. But imagine a debt that is so enormous that it would take several lifetimes working day and night and you still couldn't repay the debt. Jesus is in effect declaring his intention at this point to take on debt, all debt, all obligations owed by sinful human beings to the living and loving Lord of the universe. Jesus is willing to assume responsibility to pay the lawful demands of a righteous God for an erring and rebellious people to bring peace. So that you can know him and love him. And in verse 10, it says, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, the spirit descending upon him like a dove. We are introduced for the first time to Mark's use of that word immediately. 
We're going to see it over and over and over again in the text. It's the Greek word euthus. It means at once or right away. The picture is this is happening all at once. The text doesn't tell us exactly at this point. How is Jesus the son of God? Why exactly is God pleased with him? At this point in the narrative, we know that Jesus has come in obedience like so many others to the baptism of John. But we're not exactly sure why. Then we read the expression, he saw the heavens Parting. It's really dramatic in the original language. It's the Greek verb schizomenos. You know that word schizo. It means divided. It means to be profoundly divided. It was a word that was used in the Greek language to describe something that was ripped apart or that was torn open. Even our own phrase schizoid means severely torn we we use it to to describe a mental condition schizophrenia which means to have a divided mind or or to to have something that is so profoundly divided that, that there's no integration as far as that person is concerned but here when it says that he sees the heaven parting or splitting it becomes in part i think a metaphor for the breaking into human history and the human events of god to speak to the people to deliver the people I think in moments of honesty, there's been times in your life where you're alone in your room or you're driving in the car or your mind is and heart are filled with all kinds of things. And you you look up into heaven and you go, are you there? Hello? Anybody home? And you wish the sky would open and you wish a voice from heaven would tell you specifically what you need to know and what you need to say and what you need to do. You're not looking for a quiet, still voice. You're looking for a dramatic demonstration in the clouds that will call you by name and will point you in the right direction. And that's exactly what's happening. Literally, the sky opens In the opening verse of Ezekiel, it reads, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. When Jesus came up out of the water, heavens seemed to rip apart. And I want you to to remember that in the Old Testament, it was Joshua who parted the Jordan. It was Elijah who parted the Jordan. It was Elisha who parted the Jordan. And the parting of the Jordan becomes a symbol of God's power and presence and approval. And Jesus splits the Jordan with his own body. And he comes up out of the water and the heavens rip apart. You know, when Jacob was fleeing for his life from his brother, he came to a place in Bethel and he parked 
next to a stone and he laid his head like a pillow on that stone and he had a dream and a vision of the sky opening and a ladder coming down from heaven and angels ascending and descending on that ladder. It becomes a type and a picture of the communication that's taking place between heaven and the earth and between earth and the, he- and the heavens. When heaven opens, there's a rip. There's a tear in the fabric of existence that allows access from God to man. But if we carefully read this passage, we're going to discover something. It isn't just simply a tear that allows God to speak to his son, but it is a a tear that allows people on the earth to hear from God. Whatever physical or spiritual barriers that were set up to keep the creator and the creation apart becomes removed. And that's one of the exciting things about the opening verse in chapter nine, when it says Jesus came. Because, again, the moment Jesus comes The moment that Jesus shows up in a very real sense, whatever the barriers used to be that kept you apart from God, no longer need to keep you from God. And that's part of the point. Not only are the physical and the spiritual barriers removed. But the Holy Spirit is on the loose and ready to work because we're about to see the spirit descend It says in verse 10, remember, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. What a picture of our own salvation. Was that your experience? The heavens tore, the spirit descends, the father approves. That's what happened when I got saved. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Lost and dark and wicked. Wandering in a world estranged from God. I hear the message of hope. And someone invites me to pray a prayer. To receive Christ as my savior. To confess my sin. And my guilt and my wickedness. And the moment that I did that, literally my heart was torn in two. And the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, washing and cleansing. I literally felt the weight of guilt and wickedness lifted from my shoulder. And the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit washing and cleansing and making everything dark, light and making everything. Everything dead, filled with life. The presence of the Holy Spirit on Jesus empowers him for a task at hand and for the mission of the Messiah. And the text says, look what it says, like a dove. It's a metaphor. It doesn't say as a dove. In other words, if you're in your mind, you're seeing 
a picture of a dove coming out of the sky and landing on Jesus' shoulder. You're getting the right metaphor, but the imagery of the dove calls to mind the creative power and the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament at creation. Remember, in the very opening verses of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered or brooded over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God in this creative act, it's the Spirit of God working and ministering. And by the way, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would fall on the servant of God or the prophet of God for special acts of service or ministry. And remember what the dove is. It's a, it's a type and a picture of gentleness and harmlessness. How many professional teams call themselves the mighty doves? I know some of you are thinking, that's exactly what the Nuggets should change their name to. No, actually, they're doing pretty good. Yeah. Do doves conjure images of fear and competition? No. Doves are non-threatening. They're harmless. They're gentle. The dove doesn't resist. The dove doesn't fight back. But yet the dove is irresistible. There's something about its meekness and its humility and its beauty that attracts. And so not only does it become a type and a picture of that which is peaceful and that which is harmless, it becomes a type and a picture of that which generates love, feelings of affection. It's the power of love. Love doesn't divide. It doesn't break apart. It doesn't tear down. It doesn't destroy. Love gathers where others are scattering. It joins when everyone else is ready to leave. And so ancient rabbis and scholars, by the way, envisioned the end of the world very much like the beginning of creation. That the work of God is complete, that evil and sin is eradicated, that paradise is restored. And so the hovering of the spirit of God on the son of God marks a brand new beginning. A new creation. Just like it marks a brand new beginning in the life of the believer. When you become born again. When you are saved, the Spirit of God comes upon you. No wonder Paul would write, if any person is in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so, there's power. The ministry of Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that this is an interesting point that I want you to see and get. Isn't it interesting that the moment that Jesus identifies with us in our sin, he is given power by the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting that the moment you identify with Jesus, you're given power by the Holy Spirit so that you can overcome sin, so that you can walk in newness of life, so you can resist and reject sin rather than embrace it. Clearly, we would be wrong to think 
that this is Christ's first encounter with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Even when we read about the life of John the Baptist, we understand that he's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Did Jesus live in the spirit? Did he grow and develop in those obscure and unrecorded years? That even though those unrecorded and obscure years are, for the most part, left to our imagination, there are little hints that are given to us. The Bible says that when Jesus was a very young man, he shows up at the temple. And remember, the Bible says he continues to mature. He continues to grow in wisdom and in favor by God. And so we see something. That Jesus develops and grows And so how are we to think about the presence and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit at this time? In part, again, it fulfills the promise to John the Baptist on whom he sees the Spirit come and remain. That's God's Messiah. That's one aspect. But it's another aspect that there's a supernatural anointing and empowering for his specific service. In the Old Testament, both kings and prophets were anointed for the specific office and task empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the Bible is often associated with the power and the presence of God. And clearly later in the ministry of Jesus, after the temptation that's going to take place, you'll remember that Jesus will wind up in Nazareth. He will will open the scroll of Isaiah in his own hometown synagogue and he will read the words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. He's given me specific instructions to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are oppressed. We're not surprised that God prepares a servant. We're not surprised that he empowers his servant. But what might surprise you is that he prepares you and empowers you. Just like he prepares the son and empowers the son, the preparation that you've been called to is is a calling just as much from God. What happened to Jesus in one sense must happen to us. When Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in Acts chapter one, verse eight. So the empowering of the Holy Spirit isn't for the amusement of your family or friends. It isn't so that you can perform tricks or miracles on demand, but so that you can have the ability to speak And live the message of Jesus. That's what it means to be my witnesses. Carl F.H. Henry, one of the great theologians of of the last century, wrote, Jesus Christ turns life right side up and heaven outside in. Pretty keen and profound. Jesus turns everything around. And look what it says in verse 11. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son 
in whom I'm well pleased. Now I want you to pause for a moment and ask this question. Who heard the voice? Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. Did the others gathered hear the voice? Did John the Baptist hear the voice? Did the crowds who were gathered around, did they hear the voice? In Matthew's gospel, we read, quote, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It seems that this was the testimony to those who were watching the scene. Mark and Luke report, you are my beloved son. Addressing Jesus. And so scholars debate the subject. But I believe both are correct. I believe that when the testimony is given that people heard the father's voice expresses this unqualified approval of the person and the mission of Jesus. The voice becomes Jesus assurance. But it also becomes the assurance of everyone who's able to hear the voice concerning Jesus's identity and concerning Jesus's mission. In the text, the voice is directed toward Jesus. But I'm going to suggest something else to you as well. In the text, the voice is directed towards Jesus, but it is also directed towards anyone who reads the book. Who reads this text. In other words, Mark invites the reader or the listener to hear the voice for themselves. And I think that that's important. The sky is torn. The heavens split. The spirit descends. The father speaks. But the revelation is hidden. The revelation is hidden from those who have neither eyes to see or ears to hear. And this morning you fall into one of those two categories. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't see what you're saying. I don't hear what you're saying. Or you do hear. And you do see. In times past, a voice was heard from heaven instructing Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 2, it says, God is speaking to Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, the psalmist writes, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This passage speaks of a unique relationship between the Father and the Son. This 
is my beloved son. And you've got to understand something. It would seem here that at the baptism of Jesus, it's a kind of inauguration where he begins the official capacity to serve as God's anointed one. And that expression is literally ho agapitos. It could be translated the beloved one. It could be translated either as a title or as a descriptive adjective. Beloved son in the New King James, they've opted for the descriptive adjective. If it's a title, it expresses the intensity of love between the father and the son without losing any of its descriptive power. But as an adjective, it can be understood in the Old Testament sense as it was used by God in describing Isaac as Abraham's only son. We find the equivalent in the Greek adjective, monogenes. It means it's translated in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It means unique. It means specific. It means one of a kind, unlike any other. So the testimony of the father in whom I am well pleased, the verb is eudokesa. It's in the past tense. It can be translated, I was well pleased, but it's timeless. It, it, it should be translated, I am well pleased. The idea being, I'm pleased in the past. I'm pleased in the present. I'm pleased in the future. I'm completely, fully satisfied with my son. Why do you suppose that's important? Because as Jesus begins his ministry... He has to understand his own identity and he has to understand the father's pleasure. And you see, if you're still looking for who you are. If you're still wondering, who am I? What am I? Even when you ask the question early and you you pause for a moment and you say, I am my father's son. I am my mother's daughter. I am my family's this. I am black. I am white. I am Hispanic. I am Italian. I am American. I am this. I am that. I am whatever. And part of your identity isn't fully linked. I am God's child. I am born again. Remember what the the, the scriptures teach in John chapter one, verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The father loves the son. This is one of the most powerful, powerful arguments that the father is not the son. And the son is not the father. There are people who would tell you that you sort of cram the identity of God into all three persons that that God is the father and God is the son and God is the Holy Spirit. And there are people who wickedly and wrongly suggest that the father is a manifestation of 
of God and that the son is a manifestation of God and that the spirit is a manifestation of God and nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible makes it abundantly clear in a way that is truly incomprehensible that the father is God and that the son is God and that the Holy Spirit is God and that these three distinct persons are the one true God without in any way damaging the singularity and the unity of God. There aren't three gods. There has been and always will be only one God. Christians do not believe in three gods. They believe in one God. And that the Father is God and that the Son is God and that when the Son is incarnated, he acquires a permanent second nature. Walbert and Zuck in their commentary write, the true servant would suffer greatly in fulfilling God's will. He would die as a guilt offering and he himself would serve as the sacrificial servant. Mark gives prominence to this future feature of Jesus's messianic Mission, And so the identity of Jesus provides the key to discovering and embracing your own identity. Have you heard the Father's voice? Have you heard the words, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I'm pleased with you. We sometimes read the text of the Bible and we forget the power of the narrative. We want the Bible to be like Facebook. We want the Bible to say stuff. You know what I'd really like to know? I'd like to know what Jesus looked like. I'd like to know, hey, Jesus, where did you go to high school? Were you popular in school? What were your favorite movies? What were your favorite books? What were your favorite magazines? Haven't you ever stopped to wonder why that information isn't in the Bible? Can I say the obvious? Because it's not important to the narrative. Well, I really want to know. Well, get over it. The text actually gives you what you really need to know. And what you really need to know is that the Father loves you and is willing to forgive you and that Jesus becomes the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And Mark's gospel is going to move forward in a dramatic fashion. And it's going to constantly be revisiting this issue of whether or not your identity is in Christ or apart from Christ. Martin Luther preached, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it's lying on your back, you are lost. But if it's resting on Christ, you are free and you are saved. Now, choose what you want. Oh, I don't feel good and comfortable and confident that, that the innocent should suffer for the guilty. And guess what? You get to retain your sin. Paul understood this. And he made a different choice. 
In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that true about you? Have you been crucified with Christ? Has there come a point in your life where you go, I no longer live. My dreams and my expectations and my desires no longer matter. This is what matters. Christ's mission. Christ's identity. Christ's gifts. This is what matters. I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. And who gave himself for me. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray for each and every person. Lord, for those who can hear the voice and respond. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Father, you've. Not just suggested, but you've declared that everything about Jesus is okay with you. His birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection from the dead. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we could hear your voice of approval. That you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. And that I'm really satisfied with Jesus inside of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.